After World War I, Rudolf Dossler and his brother Adolf, tough times for the Dossler brothers, they started sewing shoes in the laundry room of their parents' house in a little town in the middle of Germany. I can't pronounce the town's name. I'm very sorry. Their big breakthrough came at the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. Athletes wearing their shoes, including Jesse Owens, Owens, won seven gold medals, not to mention other silver and bronze medals. Production on shoes ceased during World War II. Their factory was converted to make weapons, but then shoes were made again after the war ended. But then in 1948, after over 30 years of working together, the brothers shut down their shoe company and separated. Now, instead of one family shoe company, two new companies were formed in their little German town. Adolf decided to combine the shortened version of his first name and his last name and called his new company Adidas, Adidas. Rudolf settled on the name Puma. And what followed was a quarrel that lasted for decades, very famous in the shoe world, even past the deaths of the brothers themselves. And their fight was so bitter to the very end that they demanded to be buried at opposite ends of the town cemetery. No one is exactly sure what led to the falling out. There's lots of theories and stories. One story is that there was a simple misunderstanding over something Adolf had muttered during a stint inside a shelter while they were waiting out British bombers. Others cite family strife, which finally boiled over after so many years of everyone living so close together. They lived together in the same uh, house and compound. The result was a net benefit for the shoe enthusiast world, and more than that, historians call their town, after the split, the, quote, cradle of the sporting goods industry. Now, in Acts 15, we're going to see an argument between two brothers that leads to the shocking end of their partnership. It is, perhaps, the most famous disagreement in all the Bible. Paul and Barnabas clash over whether John Mark should be a part of a second missionary journey to the Gentile world. Commentators have just as many opinions as we would when we hear about a fight like this. Some say both Paul and Barnabas were right. Some say they were both wrong. Some say Paul was being unforgiving and unchristlike. Others say Barnabas was blind to reality because of his affection for his nephew. We're given a good amount of information, but what we're not given is any comment from the Holy Spirit about who was right and who was wrong or whether there was right and wrong in the situation. And so because of that, we should take care when we read through this scene. When Paul and Peter have their showdown in Galatians 2, and we've talked about it in previous studies, but when they have their showdown in Galatians 2, where Paul contends against Peter because he had stopped eating with the Gentiles and giving in to legalists, the Bible makes it clear Peter was just wrong. There wasn't two perspectives on it. He was just wrong. And yet, in this case, there are no such verdicts given to us. But interestingly, for all the things that Dr. Luke skips as he tells these stories of church history, I mean, he skips a lot in lots of years of history, but for all the things that he skips, a fair amount of text is dedicated to this falling out, and he doesn't assign blame to either party. No commentary, no punditry, no opinion. So what should we make of it? Well, first, we are given a very simple but important lesson, that unity, though an important goal for every Christian and every church, it's a goal that we all should be striving for amidst, amongst the brothers in Christ and in our own personal lives, 
even though that is a very important, necessary goal, it is not always possible. Even among the apostles who were laying down the foundation of the church during these years, perfect unity was not always achieved. Second, as we see this situation playing out, rather than join one side or the other, we can examine the conduct of each party and examine the wake left behind them. That will be infinitely more profitable than trying to assign blame to in a 2,000-year-old disagreement. Hey, if we aren't even sure why the Dossler brothers fell out at, in 1948, you, you, if you get an argument that's 2,000 years old, we're going to miss some things. We begin in verse 36, where we read this. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. In the interval since the Jerusalem council, the church at Antioch had experienced many good days of ministry. Eventually, Paul got it in mind that he would like to go back out and once again visit the places they had been before. Now, many commentators at this point say that Paul was motivated by wanderlust. He just didn't want to stay in the same place for too long. Even our beloved Dr. Ironside goes as far as saying that this whole trip was not the leading of the Holy Spirit since Paul faced lots of bumps along the road. I find it remarkable that we can, uh, and you know, it's not just Bible commentators. We do this ourselves as we're reading or thinking because we have biases and opinions, and that's fine. But I do find it remarkable sometimes when we can, with one breath, commend Paul for his courage and his endurance and his faithfulness to the Word of God and how he never compromised, and then with the next breath accuse him of being completely out of the step with God's leading. And uh, it's an inconsistent way to read his story. There's no need to accuse Paul of faulty motivation. In the New Testament, including the book of Acts, what we see is that there are times when God gives people or churches a dramatic and unique leading to go out and do some specific work that he has in mind, some new venture, some special opportunity that might only come along at a distinct point in time. One good example of that is Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. There was a point in time where he needed to be on that desert road, and if he missed that window, the opportunity was gone, right? Uh, Not that God couldn't have sent a believer to Ethiopia, but in that case, God said, I have a special assignment, a special mission for you, and it's time-sensitive, and it's circumstance-oriented, and it is unique, and it is special. We see that a lot in the book of Acts, of course. But then, when we're not on special assignment, we don't just sit around and wait for the heavens to open and for a vision to give us, you know, a sheet coming down and say, now go to this house in Joppa, right? We live the Christian life. Uh, we're still Christians meant to be about the Lord's business, doing everything we do as unto the Lord, right? Discovering good works to walk in. And so while there will be times in each of our lives as believers where maybe God will do something special and something unique, a special assignment where he says, hey, I want you to sort of cozy up to this individual and disciple them, or I want you to go on this, you know, missions trip, or I want you to do this particular work. And, you know, that work will happen for a while and then it will come to an end, right? In the meantime, When those sorts of special assignments are not given to us, when we're not clocked in on those, we don't just say, well, I'm sitting around till my next special assignment, right? We still are soldiers in the Lord's army. We're still to be about our Father's business. And that's why the New Testament talks to us so much about how to live the Christian life in the daily life. 
How, how the epistles explain to us, well, here's how you are a Christian in the home. Here's how you're a Christian in, in relation to your government. Here's how you're a Christian in relation to your kids and to your workplace and to in the church, right? Because there's regular life that we live when the special is not necessarily uh, happening. It's exciting to look at the book of Acts and see that God can use any one of his people to accomplish eternal goals at any time. I mean, if we think, if we track through the story, even as far as we've gone and knowing some of the famous stories that we know from Acts, you can be in Antioch, you can be in Jerusalem, you can be in Galatia, you can be in Samaria, you can be in a palace, you can be in a prison, you can serve God and minister across the street, or you can go to darkest Peru if you want to. Young people, old people, rich people, poor people. You can be on a desert road with no one around, you can be by the sea, you can be in the sea, and you can do ministry by the power of the Lord. And these believers in Acts didn't need a particular set of circumstances before they made it their business to be about the Lord's business. So rather than accuse Paul of something, we see him saying, it's my business to be about the Lord's business, and it's our business as well. We find ourselves in Hanford in the 21st century, and it is our business to be about the Lord's business. Now, the Lord has explained to us, hey, I'm planning to lead and guide you. I have specific ideas for your life, specific callings, specific giftings I've given you. In the meantime, you have a general Christian life that you get to live out in the home, in the school, in the workplace, in the voting booth, all of these different things. But it's our business to look around and say, how can I be about the Lord's business today? Like Paul We have freedom in Christ to say, let's go. I love that he said that, right? He said, let's go. Let's go back. Let's go back and visit. Let's go do this thing. As long as we're still in obedience to the Lord, not seeking our own selfish ambition, not seeking our own idea, as long as we're in obedience to the Lord and in line with his word, what a great mentality to say, let's go. Because what we also see in the book of Acts is that these guys, the apostles and the other believers, they had this let's go mentality, let's be about the business of God's work in our own community, or maybe God wants us to go not just across the street, but across the state or across the nation or whatever. And when God said, actually, no, I want you to go this way, they were really receptive to that. They didn't say, let's go, this is my idea, and I'm doing it no matter what. They were like Jonathan in the Old Testament who said, I have an idea. I want to be about the king's business. Let's go and see what happens. And if the Lord directs, we'll do it. If the Lord doesn't direct, we won't do it. And so the same mentality is is the one that we should carry with us as we live out the Christian life. We should also notice this about Paul's plan. The trip he wants to take here is not really to go and plant new churches. Now, he would end up going and doing that work. He's going to end up doing some new things in new places. But his idea here was to go back to where they had already been and minister to those folks. I point that out because so often people say that Paul was always being strategic in how he did ministry. If you listen to or read articles about church planting, they always talk about how Paul and the strategy he ran and how he was, you know, thinking about ways to be, you know, super effective. And they mean that in a numeric sense. They mean that in a human measurement sense. You'll often hear that, well, Paul, his, his, he always went to big urban cities because he knew from there things would sprawl out. And that's just not exactly true. In fact, one commentator wrote this, Paul's spirit was ever forming some new scheme for the advancement of Christianity. That's a gross thing to say, I think. Now, maybe they didn't mean it the way that I'm taking it, but that, I think, is reading too much humanity into the spiritual life of Paul the Apostle. 
Um, from this perspective on Paul is born the idea that churches need to be planting X number of other churches a year or that significant cities need strategic attention. There's like five cities, as far as I can tell, that need more churches. It's always the same five cities. <laughs> Seattle needs more churches. Portland needs more churches. Orange County definitely needs more churches. San Diego needs another church. Do they really? If we're talking about what's needed, or are we talking about where the Holy Spirit is leading? Because I'm guessing that, uh, I'm guessing that Tempe, Arizona is not on the top of a lot of people's list right now, right? Or Bismarck in one of the Dakotas. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm going to go with North Dakota. North Dakota? I don't see a lot of effort, right? And the idea is always like, well, we need more people. And the Holy Spirit's going to turn that idea and that mentality on its head when Paul says, I want to go here, and, Paul, and, and they say, no, you're going to go talk to a couple of women in Macedonia on the bank of a river. That's what you're going to do, right? And so we need to break out of this sort of human perspective that Paul was running the numbers, that he was a spiritual accountant and he was a spiritual, market, spiritual marketing agent always trying to squeeze the most influence he can. He didn't even set out on a church planting trip on this occasion. This was a follow-up. Paul liked following up. We see that characteristic in some of his letters. He talks about how, I want to come back and see you guys. I hope I can come back. Hey, I've been trying to get to Rome a bunch of times. This is what I want to do. He didn't set out from a numeric perspective, but from a desire to benefit people. He wanted to build people up and help them on their walks with the Lord. In the next chapter, we'll see that part of his goal was to spread the news about the Jerusalem council to these Gentile churches he had already been a part of so that other Gentile believers wouldn't be tripped up by legalists that might come to town. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take along John, who's called Mark. John was Barnabas's nephew. Some folks think he was his cousin, but he's referred to as Barnabas's sister's son later in the New Testament. John had started with Paul and his uncle on their first missionary journey a few chapters ago, and that hadn't worked out. He had bailed. Now it seems he's back in Antioch, and Barnabas wanted to put him into the batting order again. Uh, before we get to the conflict, let's notice that both Barnabas and Paul had hearts that were burdened for other people. In this situation, Barnabas had a great burden for John, uh, this Christian that needed to be restored, this, this young man who was an important part of the church because he was part of the church. And he had made a pretty significant mistake. And he needed to be restored. And God still wanted to use him. Just like when we make mistakes, God still wants to use us. And Barnabas had just this burden for John. He wanted to strengthen him and get him serving God again and have him be a part of the Lord's work. Paul also had a burden on his heart. His was for the young Christians in Syria and Galatia. He was concerned about their spiritual lives. He was concerned that, that legalists were going to set traps for them. And he wanted to help them become healthy and thriving Christians as well. Both of those burdens are good burdens. Something that we each should be praying for and as a church should be praying for is that God will put burden on our hearts for people. People in general, specific people, people that he wants us to interact with. Both of these burdens, one for the young believers out in the Gentile world, one for the sort of fallen disciple, both reflect the heart of Christ. Sometimes Jesus in the Gospels would see a mass of people and his heart would break for them and be moved because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sometimes there'd be a group of people clamoring at his very door saying, we need you to minister to us. And he would say, time for us to leave. We've got to go to another village somewhere else. 
And there were times, other times where with, when he had very little time to spare, he'd spend a whole morning cooking fish so he could restore one disciple back to fellowship, right? I mean, so these are all shown in the heart of Christ and in the work of Christ. I'm so glad that God put a burden on Paul's heart in this case because it would eventuate in him bringing the gospel west into the continent of Europe. That's what's coming. You and me get to be beneficiaries of the burden that God put on Paul's heart to go out and then the Spirit's going to say, now go west. You want to go east, you're going this way. You're going to the continent of Europe. And from there, we can connect the dots to our own salvation. Thank you, Lord. And I'm also so glad he put John as a burden on Barnabas's heart because John would go on to do remarkable things in God's power, not least of which is write the second gospel that we have in our Bibles right now. How much has that ministered to us and to countless millions throughout human history that, that God used this man to bring the gospel of Mark to us and all that it contains and all that it records and all that it reveals to us of Jesus Christ. Both of these burdens have direct impact on my life today and on your life today. The Bible in your lap and the salvation in your heart are, are fruit born from the trees that were planted in these men's hearts. They're both good things. Now we're told here that Barnabas wanted to take his nephew along. The word means he was determined. His mind was made up. Barnabas now People want to accuse him of nepotism or, or just having a soft spot for his nephew or whatever, but Barnabas was no greenhorn. He was a hardcore, battle-scarred, field-tested missionary, a sacrificial man, a man willing to lay down his life for Jesus Christ. Clearly, he understood the risk he was taking in bringing John along again. He knows there's a chance that he might have to pick up the slack or carry the weight that John might drop when things get tough, but he's willing to do it. And this is why we love Barnabas, because he's the son of encouragement. He's not only willing to deal in problematic situations, like when his friend is being stoned, he's willing to deal with problematic people. And that's a great thing, a necessary thing. When no one in Jerusalem wanted to have anything to do with Saul of Tarsus, Barnabas stood up and said, I will co-sign on him. I will sponsor this guy. You're all thinking he's about to murder you. I'm going to stand and put my neck out for him and bring him in. And if you accept me, he's coming with me. Wow, that's a great thing to do. That's great grace. And that's sometimes what is required if we want to actually help refine people and develop them as disciples. We want the John Marks of the church to become Mark, the writer of the gospel. But sometimes that means realizing, okay, this person who has messed up, who has screwed up, who has dropped the ball, they're not done. God's not done with them. And so we shouldn't be done with them. And so let's find somebody who can connect with them and bring them along and co-sign on their account so that they can become who God wants them to be. But was Barnabas just giving John a pass because they were family? I think the record speaks for itself when you look at it. You know, when people are... Uh, put in a position because of, you know, backroom dealings or family deals, in the end, it doesn't usually work out, right? Because they weren't really cut out for the job. They weren't really meant to be there. So what happened? Well, this is the last passage in Acts where we're going to see either Barnabas or John. We know that this young man went on to powerful, faithful service to the church and to Paul himself. In the last letter he wrote, 2 Timothy, Paul says this to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. He says, listen, I'm about to die. 
when you come to see me and I'm about to die, bring Mark with you. He is useful to me in the ministry. If everyone had shunned John Mark and refused to restore him, what chance would he have had to become the minister that he eventually became? Thank God for Barnabas and for the work that he did in that life. But here's the other side of things, verse 38. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. Listen, Paul's not wrong in what he's saying, or at least I completely understand why he's saying what he's saying. In the movie Inception, the wealthy financier of the team declares that he wants to tag along on the heist. And there's a great line that they give him. The response from the operatives is, there's no room for tourists on this job. But he's the guy writing the check, so he goes anyway and promptly takes a bullet to the stomach when the plan goes wrong. It's true. There was no room for tourists on that job. A trip with Paul is not a sightseeing trip. It's not fun. It's not a safari to see the big game. The animals eat you when you go on a trip with Paul. There was a good chance they would not survive. And they're not dumb. You know how they know that? Paul already didn't survive one time, and then the Lord had to resurrect him. He was already stoned to death on this trip. And he says, hey, remember those cities? You know, the one where I was stoned to death? Why don't we go back there and poke around and say, who's a Christian here, right? In the meantime, not only that, we're talking about people's eternal destinies. Paul's not playing around. We're talking about people entering into a Christless eternity from which there is no escape. This is not a training simulation. This is a live fire operation deep behind enemy lines. Real people really dying, really going to hell. So Paul is very serious because this is a real thing. When it says Paul insisted, we see he had as much resolve as Barnabas had. It's a term that means Paul judged it not good or he counted John as unworthy. Now, we might protest at that and say, now, wait just a minute, Paul. None of us are worthy to carry the gospel or to serve the Lord. That's true. But think about it this way. There are certain physical demands placed on, say, soldiers before they're launched into battle, right? That's normal. That's understandable. Can they carry the pack? Can they work the rifle? Can they exhibit some sort of endurance? The quintessential image we always see is the wall, right? On all of the TV montages, all of the movie montages, what's the thing? The wall. They go under the barbed wire. That's not that big of a deal in the montage. They're doing this, they're doing that. They're getting better at their target practice. And then the wall, that's the moment because they can't get over. They can't get over. They can't get over. And we all understand, well, if you can't get over the wall, you're probably going to have a hard time on the battlefield. And so finally they get over the wall. And then we say, okay, there you go. They have grown to the level. They have the capacity to go out and get shot at. I don't know. <laughs> There's a dissonance there for me, but we all understand that. Or think about how in certain jobs, like law enforcement or teaching, if you have a criminal record, you're not going to get hired when you apply. We understand that. That doesn't mean there's no forgiveness and say, well, you have a criminal record and so you have to be sent to an island somewhere. Nobody's saying that, but we understand this mentality of there are certain things that qualify or disqualify you in certain areas of society. And Paul's looking at this guy and he's saying, you know, we have to have people who can carry the pack. 
because you might be burying me when we go out there. And, and we need somebody who can do the job. It's not that Paul was getting revenge for what John had done a few years ago. He doesn't even just say, you know, me and John just don't gel. He's got a very specific complaint here. He says, look, he didn't get over the wall. And where we're going, it's all walls. It's all walls nonstop. And so he couldn't do it. And so I don't think so. His concern is practical. They had to travel light. Everybody had to do their part on these trips. And he was focused on the people out there needing ministry. He was focused, in a sense, on the audience, right? Whereas Barnabas, in the situation, was focused on the associates of the ministry. And both are valid targets. Both are meanwhile, worthwhile efforts. But in this case, those focuses became mutually exclusive, they were both determined, hey, this is the burden God has put on my heart. Well, this is the burden God has put on my heart. I'm rubber and you're glue. This isn't going to work out together. Verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. When Adolf and Rudolf Dossler split apart, they then each, this is the best, I love this. They each set up their new shoe companies on either side of the banks of the river that runs through their town. Their town has a river that runs through it. They literally divided the town. And it's true, you should look into it. There's some really cool stories about it because at least one person from every family in this small town, at least one person in every family worked for one of the companies. So what did you think happened? It literally divided the town. And it's true, I'm not making this stuff up. There's all kinds of articles and stories about it. Uh, for decades, the town was divided. Puma and Adidas families went to separate bakeries, had their own separate butchers, had their own separate pubs. Puma people did not date Adidas people, let alone marry them. The division was so real that the residents became known as the Bentnecks because you always looked down to someone's feet before you started talking to them. And it's true, this really happened. They needed to decide if you're worth speaking to. Nope, you're wearing the wrong shoe. The disagreement between Paul and Barnabas did mean the end of their partnership. They parted company, but notice they didn't portion up the church. They didn't form two different congregations. Barnabas didn't make sure to hang around Antioch after Paul had left on his trip to tear him down and to trash talk him to anybody nor was there some sort of ancient biblical space race to see who could get to the towns first, who could get to Cyprus first, who could get to Galatia first. Instead, we see them graciously going off in different directions, demanding nothing for themselves. So even though they weren't working shoulder to shoulder, they were still cooperating. They were not competing in the Lord's business. The fact that there was no sanction from the church in Antioch, no call for reconciliation, suggests that they were still handling themselves with godliness and grace. Remember, this church is the church that was really sensitive to doing what was right. Uh, they were sensitive to what God wanted and what was true. They were willing to do arbitration. During this whole legalist thing, they said, listen, if God says we all have to be circumcised and follow the law, we'll do it. Let's figure it out. Let's work it through. This debate between Paul and Barnabas must have been very public. They're leaders in the church for years. They're beloved. They're huge giants walking among, you know, the, the, the Christians of Antioch, of course. I mean, this is like Simon and Garfunkel breaking up. 
but there's no pressure from the church for them to come to the table and make nice, which indicates that there was no need for them to come to the table and make nice. Instead, we're told that they commended Paul and Silas to the grace of the Lord. Now, some commentators see that and jump to the conclusion that, ah, Barnabas must have been the wrong one because he wasn't commended. That doesn't say that. Luke is telling Paul's story at this point and for the rest of the book. He's telling Paul's story. He's no longer telling Barnabas's story or Peter's story for that matter. So there's no need to villainize anyone. No, Barnabas sailed back to Cyprus, his home island, to do the checking in on the towns and the Christians there. And Paul said, that's fine. If Paul really thought that Barnabas was walking in ungodliness or was in real error, would he have said, yeah, go ahead and take Cyprus, who cares? Paul was ready to go to the mat and wrestle it out with Judaizers, with other apostles if necessary, to say, hey, you are not right about what you're doing here. But they looked at there and they said, okay, I'm gonna go to Cyprus. So you're gonna head this way. I love you. God go with you, right? And that's what seems to have happened. Now, church history tells us that Barnabas served God faithfully and powerfully until he was put to death for his faith in Christ. Church history records that John Mark was there while he was tortured and executed, and that when it happened, he then buried his uncle and then carried on in his ministry to the Lord. And so these two guys, Barnabas and John Mark, they are remarkable, admirable men. Paul wasn't going to head onto the field alone, so he put out a call to a new acquaintance of his, Silas. We met him in the last passage. It would have been impossible for Silas to know just exactly what he was signing up for, though he was going to find out real, real soon. But Silas became a great partner and a dear friend to Paul. If you ever see a guy named Sylvanus in your translation of the Bible, same thing, same guy. It seems he also served alongside Peter, helping to deliver his epistle as well. He served as what is known as an amanuensis, where he would write the letter down and help deliver it. Verse 41, he traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. You know, Paul experienced a lot of hurt in his life, of course, physical hurt, but we have to think about the emotional toll that this would have taken. Barnabas was his first friend in the faith. I mean, you could maybe say the Ananias who came and, you know, laid hands on him, but I mean, as Paul was out there, you know, kind of on his own doing work in Arabia and in Tarsus and things like that, and, and who came? Who came through the door? Barnabas came through the door, and from, since then, they had been just inseparable, working together, suffering together, traveling together, serving God together, teaching together, working in the church together. I don't know if you've ever had a, a, a real falling out with a friend who you really loved, but that has got to hurt. Uh, but we see him faithfully carrying on, moving forward in his walk with the Lord. There were people out there who needed strengthening, Christians who needed nourishment and encouragement and care. And so I'm sure it was very painful to have to watch such a dear friend set sail away and know that, yeah, I'm, we're done. We're, we're not gonna yoke together anymore. But in God's grace, Paul was able to continue to keep serving. And despite this, um, I'm sure what felt like emotional weakness, I'm sure it hurt a lot. He was uh, showing the power of God strong in his life that he could still continue and do the good work of the gospel and do what needed doing. This most famous argument in all the Bible shows us that agreement and unity is not always possible in the church, even among brothers and sisters. 
but that's okay if we are disagreeing in a right way, in a godly and biblical way. There might not be a resolution or a bridge built over the particular issue. But when we come into a situation like this, when we, if we find ourselves in a disagreement like this, we're not to act like the Dossler brothers we're, and divide everything up, divide and conquer and compete and try to tear the other one down to the, our last dying breath. We're to act like Barnabas and Paul. They didn't turn their friends or church into rivals. They weren't giving their hearts over to bitterness or revenge. Instead, their joint force for good became two meaningful missions in the work of God because they were not bent necks, looking down at the human level of who was right and who was to blame. Their focus was the upward uh, high call of heaven. They were looking up. They're not looking down. And rather than be motivated by spite, they were motivated by a heavenly spiritual burden to reach out to those who needed spiritual help. And what their example proves is that all of us in any place can follow this same pattern, living out our Christianity in grace and purpose, not always in perfect harmony with uh, everyone around us, not always in perfect harmony with how God is leading other individuals maybe, but we can always be led in love, cooperating, not competing, magnifying God in whatever ways he makes available to us to do so. Amen?